start with a lecture verse. The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So I wanted to start by saying that I first got something last night in my rough, I'd actually say very rough, explanation of the contents of the Pali Canon. So in my enthusiasm to list the five subdivisions of the Sutta Pitaka, um, that's the five Nikayas, I failed to mention the third Pitaka, the third basket. So the Pali Canon consists of three Pitakas, three baskets. Number one, the Vinaya Pitaka, that's the rules of the monastic Sangha. Uh, the, the Sutta Pitaka, that's the basket of the thread or of the well-spoken. Um, this is primarily the teachings coming from the Buddha. The word Sutta or Sutra in Sanskrit means that which sews and holds things together. Uh, and sometimes sutta, sutra, is simply referred to as a string or thread. But what I forgot last night was the third pitaka, um, which is the Abhidhamma pitaka. And the Abhidhamma pitaka consists of treases that elaborate Buddhist doctrines, particularly about the mind, um, and it's sometimes re referred to as the systematic philosophy basket. So that's, that's what I forgot. So today I'm going to talk about the Kalama Sutra. The Kalama Sutra is in the numerical discourses. And of course, uh, there were copies of the, the Sutta that Reverend Master Scholastica did for us very kindly uh, up in the guest house. So I'm hoping that all of you who wanted to, got a chance to read it. But if you didn't, it's there and you can read it after. I think I talked about the Kalama Sutra the last time I did a seven-day retreat on the Buddha's teaching from the Pali Canon. And actually, I've talked about the Kalama Sutra numerous times. So excuse me if you've heard this before. Um, but I guess for me, I think it's just really a crucial, important teaching um, from the Buddha. Uh, and it gives real insight into how the Buddha taught. Now, for me personally, no matter how many times I've read it, I find I'm inspired and amazed by seeing the Buddha give teaching to the Kalamas. As I mentioned last night, it's one of the most quoted and, and one of the most misquoted of the Buddha's teachings. For all these reasons, I think it's worth having a good look at again. We find the Kalama Sutra in the Anguttara Nikaya. That's the numerical discourses. And the Kalamas were, I'm just going to kind of set the stage here. The Kalamas were a people living at the time of the Buddha in a remote area of the Ganges Plain. Um, I think uh, there may have been a forest near the town of Kesiputa. That's the town that they lived in. Uh, 
And so, as happened in those days, because there were a lot of wandering ascetics, wandering um, people aspiring for the truth, so quite a number of religious teachers of the day would come into the town on alms round for food, and what they would do uh, as, as kind of a way of giving back or thanking is to give a talk in return. The problem was, though, that each teacher would extol his own doctrine and tear down the doctrine of the other teachers who came before him. Uh, and this kind of went on and on and on. And this left the Kalamas confused and perplexed as to what was the true doctrine they should take refuge in. So when the Buddha came to this area of India, the Kalamas hoped that he would clear away their confusion and doubts because they heard lots of good reports about his teaching. And then I think what, what unfolds in, in the rest of the sutta is just amazing um, example of, of skillful means uh, and, and wisdom and compassion. So the first thing that Buddha did was to put the Kalamas at ease. Uh, he said that it's fitting for them to be perplexed and in doubt with all these teachers contradicting each other and insisting that they only had the truth. Um, you know, this is somewhat what we might feel like in our modern world with so much coming at us. Uh, we don't have the wandering teachers uh, like like the time of the Buddha, but we have information just bombarding us constantly. And it's hard to know what's true. Uh, so the Buddha proceeds to describe how a follower of his teachings would go at the matter of truth. He doesn't say, do this, do this, do that. Um, but he just simply um, proceeds to describe how a follower of his teachings would go at the matter of truth. So I'm going to quote here from Bhikkhu Bodhi in his book, In the Words of the Buddha. The Buddha then told them not to rely on uh, ten sources of belief. Four of these pertain to established scriptural authority, oral tradition, lineage of teachings, hearsay, and collections of texts. Four to rational grounds, logic, inferential reason, reason cognition, and the acceptance of a view after pondering it. And two, to authoritative persons, impressive speakers, and respected teachers. So what happens, unfortunately, is that sometimes people take this part of the, 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 the sutta and um, they turn it into that the, the Buddha uh, rejected all, the Buddha said to reject all external authorities and, and invited each individual to fashion his or her own personal path to truth. But that's not quite what he said. And that's, that's just part of the sutta. sutta. It, it's what's important in looking at um, the various teachings that he gave because often there was a context he was giving them in. And, and it's important to look at the context and just you know, not grab a, a few phrases from it. So 
uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, read in context, however, the message of the Kalama Sutta is quite different. The Buddha is not advising the Kalamas who had at this point not become his disciples to reject all authoritative guides to spiritual understanding and fall back solely on their own personal intuition. Rather, he is offering them a simple and pragmatic outlet from the morass of doubt and perplexity in which they are immersed. So in the the sutta, a number of times, the Buddha says, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of text, by logic, by inferential reasoning, by reason cognition, by acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken in practice, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And the Buddha also says, but when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to the welfare and happiness. Then you should engage in them. So then the Buddha proceeds to ask the Kalamas a number of questions pertaining to their immediate welfare and happiness. He doesn't demand that um, we, one begins one's spiritual quest by placing faiths and doctrines that lie beyond the scope of uh, their immediate experience. Hence, the questions he asks concern the consequences of, of the acting out uh, and the not acting out of greed, hate, hatred, and delusion. In other words, breaking the precepts or keeping the precepts. Um, the questions he asks concern the consequences of killing, stealing, engaging in sexual misconduct, telling lies, and getting others to do likewise. Or, on the other hand, keeping these precepts and not acting from greed, hate, or delusion. The Buddha, Buddha says a person who is without greed, without hatred, and without delusion, not overpowered by greed, hatred, and delusion, his thoughts not controlled by them will abstain from the destruction of life, from the taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, conduct, excuse me, and from false speech. He will also prompt others to do likewise. And he asks the question, will that conduce to his welfare and happiness for a long time? And, and the Columbus say, of course, yes. And he's not telling them what to do, but he's, he's asking to look at these uh, various actions and, and uh, breakages and keeping of the precepts. What's the consequence? And is that the consequence that you would like? It seems that the Kalamas had some questions and wonderings around the doctrines of rebirth and karma. But rather than go off philosophically about rebirth and karma, the Buddha keeps it simple. The Buddha's purpose is to lead the Kalamas to see that even were they to suspend concerns about future lives, unwholesome mental states of greed, hate, and delusion, and, and 
unwholesome actions of killing, stealing, and lying cause harm and suffering here and now. So whether there's an afterlife or not, and, and this is to both self and others, these, these actions. Conversely, wholesome mental states and perceptual actions promote long-term welfare and happiness in the present. Once this is seen, the immediate harmful consequences that unwholesome mental actions cause becomes a sufficient reason for abandoning them. And the visible benefits of wholesome mental states becomes a sufficient motivation for cultivating them. Whether or not there is life after death, one has good reason in the present life to abandon unwholesome mental states and cultivate wholesome mental states. If there actually is an afterlife, one's in a good position. In a very skillful way, we see that the Buddha, by letting the Kalamas reason and answer questions themselves about the results and consequences of different types of actions, has helped them out out of their confusion. What I really like about this, this sutta is that the Buddha did... Uh, let me just look at this again, sorry. He, he, the Buddha just didn't go in there and clear everything up for the Kalamas and say, well, do this and do that and, you know, and it'll all be fine. No, he asked them questions and, and what did they think? Okay. Um, yeah, he, he let them answer these questions for themselves. Consequently, the Buddha was able to introduce to them karma and rebirth. Um, at the end of the sutta, the Kalamas, out of gratitude, asked to become the Buddha's disciples. Uh, you know, in, in, in reading this quite a number of times, I think that the Kalamas, you know, actually just needed a little nudge. You know, how some of us need a little nudge uh, by by the by the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and then some of us need more of a gentle push. Uh, Bodhidharma says, excuse me, Bodhidharma, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, in sharp contrast to revealed religion, the Buddha does not demand that we begin our spiritual quest by placing faith in doctrines that lie beyond the range of our immediate experience. Rather than ask us to wrestle with issues that for us in our present condition, no, matter, no, no amount of, the, of experience can decide, he instead asks us to consider a few simple questions pertaining to our immediate welfare and happiness, questions that we can answer on the basis of personal experience. The fact that we cannot presently validate such matters does not constitute grounds for rejecting them. As, as invalid or even as irrelevant. It only means that we should put them aside for the time being and concern ourselves with issues that come within the range of direct experience. So Reverend Master Jiu had this term. She called it putting things on the back burner. And she said that you know, she, she got teachings from her teachers, Koho Zenji, um, Venerable Sek Kim Seng, and she didn't understand everything. But rather than make it an issue, um, she chose to just put it on the back burner. It's like having a, 
I guess the, the analogy is having a pot on the stove that needs to just simmer for a while. So we push it to the back burner, which I assume there is not as, as intense heat underneath it. So it just slowly, you know, cooks. I think this is a true statement for all of us, but I think we all have a PhD in suffering as human beings. You know, it's, it's probably, I mean, we should get degrees in it. Um, it's essential that we investigate and find the causes and conditions that lead to our suffering, as well as the causes and conditions that lead to our welfare and happiness. The Buddha points the way. You know, the scriptures point the way, the Dharma points the way, the Sangha points the way, but we have to do the investigating ourselves. Once we see and know what leads to freedom from suffering, we can make better choices, choices that cause less karma. Once we know for ourselves this is wholesome, excuse me, once we know for ourselves that this is unwholesome or wholesome, blamable or blameless, censured or praised by the wise, undertaken and practiced, uh, does it lead to harm and suffering or not? We are, um, yeah, once, once we can do this, we cause less harm in our world and we make it a better place. In time, continuing in this training, we understand the depths of the Buddha's teachings. It's not that uh, this, this idea of knowing for ourselves is not that we have to doubt and mistrust others and that we are alone without any help. Um, and we are the owners of our karma. We're the heir to our karma. We have the responsibility for who we are and how we live. We have to look into matters and decide what is good to do. You know, it's said in Buddhism that the Buddhas and ancestors point the way, but each of us must walk, walk it ourselves. In actual fact, if we do that, we'll get all the help we need. And that's my talk on the Kalama Sutra. Thank you. <laughs>